Good morning. Welcome. Thank you for coming to church. It's, a, it's an exciting time. Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, and the Christian calendar is key. Hallmark passages and moments in the life and calendar of a church and of people. Next week, we're giving out candy to your kids. I think this week, parents, we have a bunch of baby chicks that they have upstairs that they're giving to your kids. So don't, don't mind the mess. First service said there was a little mess, but we've cleaned it up and They'll, they'll send your kids home with a bunch of baby chickens. It'll be great. You know, you can, we do interesting things as a culture, don't we, with Easter. But thank you for coming this morning. Um, I'm excited to celebrate this morning with you. Um, next week's egg hunt. It's exciting. There's a traditional call and response thing that happens this calendar time of the year for Christians. Um, someone says, He is risen. And the congregation says, That's next week. Not yet. Right now in the life cycle of a church, Jesus is on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that's Palm Sunday. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, before we jump into the passage, uh, Mark 11, 1 through 11, we're looking at the graphic account of Jesus entering the scene of mankind. Um, I'd like to pray, if that's okay. So bow your heads with me and join me as we pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for today. I thank you for this being a visited planet, this being the planet that you've come, uh, you've come to communicate, you've come to conquer our big enemies, Lord, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You've come to give us life and meaning and purpose. You've come to do so much in the life of a Christian, Lord. We just, we just want to focus on you, think of you, worship you, celebrate you this morning as a church, as an individuals, and as a body of Christians, Lord. We just want to look to you and look to your gospel account of Mark's testimony about you. I pray you just really, you enter the scene of mankind in a humble and dramatic way, and you are exiting the scene of mankind in a humble and dramatic way, and you will return in a dramatic, glorified way, Lord. I pray that you would, we would take, take things serious this morning as men and women. I pray we would not handle the Word of God lightly. We'd handle it correctly as individuals. Help me to communicate correctly as a, as a, as a brother. Communicate the Word of God to my brothers and sisters correctly, Lord. I ask that you would Help us to make this moment in our life matter. Help us to learn about you, help us to love you, and help us to walk away desiring to live differently, live more biblically uh, because of today's passage. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The title we have is Humble King, Great Savior. Humble King, Great Savior. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Um, I workshopped a few other titles. Um, One is a donkey, a king, and you. How's the, how's the other one? A uh, third option that didn't make the cutting board that I'm not putting out there, but we're just talking about is uh, Jesus' Uber. That's the, that's the third, third title we're looking at this morning. But the book of Mark is said to be a passion narrative focusing on the last week of Jesus' life. And if you've read the book of Mark or know Mark, he really has the most briefest gospel accounts of any of the four other gospel accounts. And he says immediately all the time. And he's just rushing from one thing to the next. It's like he's from the Northeast, and he has a desire to really get through to what's happening next. And so uh, gospel commentaries joke about how all of Mark is a quick, immediate buildup to this last week of Jesus' life, Mark 11 through Mark 16. Um, and it's this quick and sudden buildup to Jesus' last week here on earth. Uh, and understand the passage we're reading about this morning in Mark 11, you need to understand Passover week in the Jewish culture. Um, the city of Jerusalem tripled in size this week, the Passover week. It tripled in size. People come from all over the, the region to Jerusalem to worship God and to the sights and sounds and smells, to see and be seen. They would, they would flock to the nation of Israel's capital city 
And the population of that city of Jerusalem would triple in size during this time, which was just the who's who would be there, and you know who would be there. Famous people and infamous people, politically powerful people, religious leaders, and nobodies. They would flock to this city, have parties and celebratory things, and religious festival and feasts would be occurring this whole week. It would triple in size from its normal size. So let's look at the passage in Mark 11, picking up in verse 1. If you'd read with me, Mark 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethanage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them that the Lord had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As we work through this passage, uh, we need to, I'm breaking it down into sections for us to wrap our minds around what is happening. And there seems to be some themes um, in this passage that I think would be beneficial to you to focus on, to highlight this morning. I'd like you to consider the first three verses. If I group those together and package them, there seems to be a theme. Um, Mark 11, 1 through 3, the theme for those three verses is we worship, as Christians, we worship Jesus who is always in complete control. We worship Jesus who is always in complete control. And if you read ahead through Mark, this triumphal entry of Jesus coming into the capital scene of Jerusalem was a massive event. Seems like things are out of control, the rest of the book of Mark. What follows in this passage is is passage after passage of like heavyweight prize fighting boxing occurring of Jesus just throwing it down with the enemies of God. And massive blockbuster events are happening throughout the rest of the book of Mark. Massive blow after blow is occurring until the the perceived knockout blow of the crucifixion occurs later on in this chapter of this book. So like the very next passage is Jesus clears the temple. He clears the largest religious entity of the day in the capital city of Jerusalem that is packed to the gills full of people. It's just stuffed with people from all over. He clears and empties out the temple. He's flipping tables, making whips, driving people out of there because they're taking advantage of poor people. Jesus clears the temple. The next we see, in a few verses after that, is Jesus' scathing controversy of debates with the top Jewish leaders. It's like, headline, headline, read all about it. Jesus is roasting the Pharisees again. <laughs> Let me go on to the next one. Jesus' apocalyptic discourse. We read that in Mark 13, 1 through 37, a detailed apocalyptic discourse. Then in Mark 14, we see the plot to kill Jesus starting to roll full steam ahead. And then we see Jesus' Last Supper. Remember? The, the painting scene of Jesus on one side of the table and all the disciples on the other side of the table. I mean, that's not how it occurred, but that's how the, it was painted up. The, the Last Supper scene occurs next in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that, Garden of Gethsemane? You're nodding right now. That's your cue to nod, Garden of Gethsemane. And then we see Jesus' betrayal. And we see Jesus' illegal nighttime court ruling occurring. 
And then we see the crucifixion of Christ in Mark 15. And then we see the Son of God, Jesus, dying on a cross in Mark 15, 33. And then we see the resurrection morning occurring in Mark 16. And then we see the great commissioning, the great commission happening in Mark 16, 15 through 18, where Jesus' final marching orders to the followers of Christ to carry out his, his work of expanding the church around the globe. It is a heavyweight prize fight occurring of heavy-hitting passages, one after another after another. And this, these 11 verses we're looking at this morning is the last peaceful part of Mark's narrative on Jesus' last days. And these 11 verses are beautiful in how they, you read through them. They're dripping with a theme. And the theme that I see as I read this passage and what's beyond this is we worship Jesus who is always in complete control. Jesus is complete control, and everything he does is premeditated in how he communicates and how he leads and how he helps people. He's premeditated and playing out page after page, chapter after chapter in these high-stakes situations. We see people's response to the authority of Jesus is they worship a God who's in complete control. His majesty of Jesus, we see worshiping a God who's in complete control. We see men and women, brothers and sisters, worshiping Jesus who's in complete control. Jesus is in complete control and knows what he is working on and what he's working with. You know who has, who does not have complete control? Well, you might have complete control, but the people around you do not have complete control. We... He's working with people like us who lack control, the ability to control ourselves or anything in our lives. We can't control our health. We can't control our future. We can't control our finances. We can't control our situation. We can't control the health, future, and finances of people around us. We have no control over our lives. I'm a father of four kids. Um, my kids are a blessing. If you've ever hung out with little kids, they just, they just move, they fidget, they, they talk, they just say things. They're learning how to control their bodies. And if you're an adult and you're having to preach and you're watching your youngest two kids on a Sunday morning, you're like, this is an interesting, I'm, I'm holding on a little steering wheel a little loose this morning because my wife's not watching my kids this morning. There's a, a lack of control. And some of you, you thrive in that. Others of you, it feel like you're dying if you don't have control over your lives. But the reality is we do not have control on our lives. It doesn't take a child to show that we can't control our lives. Just think about your life the last couple of years. There's a theme that you're not in charge. You're not in control. Jesus, to, you know, to compliment and to help counter, counter that reality that who he's working with is not in control, he seems to send his disciples out in pairs. You see this throughout the gospel accounts earlier in Mark and Luke and Matthew and John, but he sends his disciples out in pairs, not desiring Lone Ranger Christianity, just you and your Bible walking off into the sunset to get burned. You know, he sends Christians out in pairs in teams is what we see throughout the gospel accounts into the New Testament church. A solitary Christian all alone is never ideal. And I was, I was reminded of a story. Shane and I went to a gospel coalition conference in Indiana, Indiana, Indianapolis, somewhere, a couple of years ago. This was before COVID, pre-COVID, pre-live streams, when everyone had a live stream. Um, this was back when only a few had live streams. And we walked through these booths of books and handouts and free merch and stuff, and I was just... I, I like to get all the free stuff I can to bring back the best of the best for my kids. That's what I was doing. And so I was looking through the stuff as one of the guys was communicating, preaching, like a bad Christian. I wasn't paying attention. I was kind of paying attention. Anyways, I was going through my stuff in my bag, and I was looking at the flyers someone handed me, and a vendor handed us the flyer of live streaming. 
And there's a photo of a lady on a mountaintop by herself, you know, sitting on a rock, holding a tablet, watching and worshiping alone. And I turned to the other pastor by me, I'm like, this is the problem. <laughs> this is why we don't, that's not ideal. Long-term situation is being completely and totally alone. Well, while having a live stream, hello live stream, is a good thing. Uh, it's the modern day version of a tape ministry. Watch, watching and worshiping alone is never an ideal way for to exist as a Christian. Our lives are not in control like we think they are. Our lack of control requires Christian community. We worship Jesus who is always in complete control, and his purpose was that his followers would be in the context of community. In good times, like Mark 11, 1 through 11, when the whole city is celebrating and worshiping Jesus, they were there to walk through the good times together. In bad times, like the rest of Mark's narrative, one by one, you see the disciples systematically getting divided and conquered, and you see some of the worst moments of these men's lives when they're alone. We worship a God who is in complete and total control. The God-man Jesus who we worship desires believers to be in community. Solitary Christianity is never ideal. If you claim to be a Christian, you come to church once a year or twice a year. I see you on Easter. I see you on Christmas. That's not an ideal place to be of a follower of Christ. You're in an extremely dangerous place. I would say you're right where the devil wants you, outside of the context of community. We worship a God who's in complete and total control, and you and I are not in complete and total control of our lives. We need the Word of God, and we need the people of God to be the godly man or woman that God wants us to be. Look with me at the verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? About the untying the colt, the donkey. Why are you doing this? The Lord Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. This borrowing spirit was common in the Jerusalem at this time when people were on their pilgrimage to the temple during the Passover. They would get tired and weak and they'd send a servant on ahead to get, you know, livestock to transport people that are tired and weak to help finish the pilgrimage. Because if you go to Jerusalem, you'll see it's an uphill walk. Jerusalem's David built it on a hill. And if you go from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's a 17-mile walk, and it's uphill most of the way. This borrowing was common. <clears throat> but to clarify that you don't usually borrow an unbroken colt, an unbroken donkey, because they usually don't listen. You have to break. If you don't know livestock, let me do my poor version of explaining this. Uh, horses don't just like saddles on their back and giving people rides. They actually hate that. And like a cougar jumping on their back and attacking them is what happens in the wild. So to have, a, have something strapped onto the back of a horse is very not normal. Donkeys, the same thing. They don't like people on their backs. <laughs> they buck and they bite and they kick. They are not happy with stuff on their backs. And so to take a baby donkey and walk away with it is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, are you stealing this? Do you realize this thing's not broken? It's not going to do what you want it to do is probably how the interaction went. But the phrase, the Lord has need of it, should echo what, if you've read the Old Testament, King David, he sent his servants ahead to get the bread of the temple, and he said, the Lord has need of it. What, what is amazing about this is now the bread of life, the Messiah, Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, if you remember back to Christmas, y'all, born in Bethlehem, which means, which means bread. The bread of life is coming to the temple, his temple, his capital city, his people. Why? Why? Jesus is doing all of this that he might draw all people to himself. If you haven't read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus isn't surprised by anything. 
He isn't alarmed by anything. He isn't taken back by anything. He isn't pressured by anyone. He isn't rattled by anything. He isn't rushed by anything. He's in complete and total control. During one of the worst weeks of his life, he's in complete and total control. The best moments in his life, he's in complete and total control. We worship the God-man, Jesus, who is in complete and total control of everything. The second main theme, if you look at verses 4 through 7, if we package that together, this theme is all throughout the Gospels, but I think those four verses really help point to this next main theme, verses 4 through 7. We worship Jesus who always submits to the Word of God. I'll say that again. We worship Jesus who always submits to the Word of God. If you think of Jesus' life, at the beginning of his life, to the end of his life, you can see a complete and total submission of, a, of, a, of Jesus submitting to the Word of God, the will of God. You see it in his birth story, and where and when and why and how he was born. You see it in his tween years. We see it during his early years of ministry. Every moment of Jesus' ministry in his life, we see a life who's completely and totally submitted to the Word of God. His life, his death, his resurrection were submitted to God's Word, God's will, God's purposes. God's word is king of my king's life. Every moment of his ministry is orchestrated to the notes of scripture. Let's read verses four through seven. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, why are you doing, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought to the colt, the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So you'll see in the Bibles, in the Gospel accounts, Jesus riding on a boat. This is the first time Jesus is actually riding on a livestock, on a donkey. He's been walking the last three years. And untying a juvenile colt, what I already said earlier, was they thought they was either confused about the fact that it's not been broken, or they thought they might be stealing this, this colt in the hustle and bustle of Passover week. But we worship a God who always submits to the Word of God. If you look with me in Zechariah 9, 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout and triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Why does this matter? Why did I get up? And why am I here at this church? And why are they talking about baby donkeys? That, this is key. This is key. Some of you are like, yeah, <laughs> this is key. This is why this matters. So you have to know your Old Testament, the beginning of the Bible. We're starting in Mark. You have to, the beginning of the Bible. If you look at 1 Samuel 6, 7 this afternoon, Numbers 19, 2, or Deuteronomy 21, 3, you'll see this, this pattern, this theme of an unyoked donkey, an unyoked cow, an unyoked livestock considered sacred. Uh, the, the, an unyoked animal, an unbroken animal is considered sacred and a divine, and is given divine use, divine purposes to be used by God to transport the Ark of the Covenant, which is supposed to be a symbol of the presence of God among the people of God. And they didn't just have people carrying it around. They didn't just take a broken horse or a broken cattle or a broken donkey and have them transport the Ark of the Covenant. They had an unyoked animal who's not been trained by men, who's un hampered by men to do the work of moving the presence of God from where it is to where it should go. So it's like a supernatural event that God's presence is moving among the people of Israel. Do you get that? It's kind of like before Elon Musk made those cars that drive themselves. It's like if you get in a car and you sit down, you're like, Jesus, take the wheel. And the car drives itself to church and opens the door and you're like, hey, you know, there's something supernatural that occurs. 
Something supernatural occurs when an unbroken animal who's not been trained what to do and where to do it moves the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. So the true Ark of the Covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, needed an unridden, unyoked, untampered with, uncontaminated animal to transport him from where he was, Bethany, to the temple. Jesus is the presence of God among his people. And he's coming to the temple, coming to the capital city of Jerusalem. This matters. Fulfills Old Testament prophecy, and this matters to be right with the law. Writing about this moment in history of Jesus' triumphal entry into the capital city during Passover week, Sinclair Ferguson said, His majesty and authority begin to shine through from the moment he has entered into Jerusalem. His authority, you see in the next section, when he empties out the temple during the biggest week of the year, flipping tables and getting a whip and driving people out because he owns it. That's his house. His authority. And you see his authority of rhetoric, his authority of debate, his authority of logic, reason, his authority being flexed on all the enemies of God the next couple chapters. Jesus is modeling total submission to the word of God, even during one of the darkest weeks of his life. Jesus is modeling total submission to the word of God as God fulfills his plan of rolling out the opportunity for salvation for mankind. We worship Jesus who always submits to the word of God. No matter the cost, Jesus models that God's ways are better than your ways. God's ways are better than our ways. Jesus models that God's plans is better than your plans. Jesus models that God's purpose is better than your purpose. And Jesus models that God's timing is better than your timing. Jesus worship, we worship Jesus who always submits to the word of God. Do you? Do I? We don't always submit to the word of God. That is the reality of who Jesus is working with. People who do not always submit to the will and word of God. We struggle. I struggle and you struggle. We all struggle. This is the struggle bus. And that's a church. And we're learning how to yield our lives to the word of God and yield our lives and submit to all that is written in the Bible about our lives. But we have King Jesus who went before us who always submits to the word of God. The third main theme, if you look at verses 7 through 11, we worship Jesus, the humble God. We worship Jesus, the humble God. Verse 7, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. In Stephen Lambert's writing and the, in his book, It Is Well, he contrasts the rise to power of Islam with Christianity. The rise of power of Islam, again, comparing that and contrasting that to Christianity. So when Muhammad rode into Mecca, he came in on a war horse with 400 mounted soldiers behind him and 10,000 foot soldiers with him. He came to power in his power grab and he had an army with him. And you had an option if you're in Mecca at that time. You either join Muhammad or you're killed or you're enslaved into his army. Muhammad conquered Mecca and took control of its religious, political, and its military leaders. That is how Islam began. So compare and contrast that with Jesus. It's unclear if the whole crowd realized the meaning of what was happening this day. If the Roman garrison had been present outside the gate and recognized the implications of Jesus' claim, they would have arrested him. No one would have expected a, a genuine mess, person with a messianic claim to be the king of the nation of Israel, to enter Jerusalem peacefully, especially unarmed. They'd expect him to come with a military behind him. 
Because anyone who came in was experiencing war and imminent death. Mark highlights the humility of Jesus, how he chose him as a, not just riding in on a juvenile animal, but the humility of Christ to suffer and die on the cross. The average cost of dying, the average cost of buying a donkey was two to ten months' wage, and he had to borrow it because he was completely broke. He couldn't even afford to buy his own donkey. He had to borrow a donkey and immediately rush it back. And the first garments that were thrown on the donkey's back was the disciples trying to help be functional for Jesus as he rode on the donkey. But the rest of the garments, the palm branches and the crowds, the people worshiping and honoring a divine king, a humble king, a great savior. He's humble enough to ride on the back of a donkey, humble enough to die on the cross for you and for me. But he's great enough to save all to look, all that look to him for salvation. If you think about Jesus' birth story and his death story, the end of Jesus' life, the beginning of his life. His birth story, there's a central role in that birth story at Christmas time of his mom, a teenage mom who has a scandalous background of teenage mother riding on a donkey to Bethlehem. And his death story begins with a central role of a 33-year-old broke preacher riding on a colt's donkey's back. And what follows is like a parade-like float scene of Jesus knew in his mind that non-Jews, especially, was well known by non-Jews, especially Galileans who had come to the festival. But spreading the garments as a symbol of royal homage paid to leaders, draping the colt with robes, would have been brightly covered coats and robes, was, would have really made him stand out. But this, this trek uphill to Jerusalem with large branches being thrown down before him, it's unlikely that people recognize what was happening in front of them. Look at me at verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And this is pulled from Psalms 19, verses 4, 25 and 26. Hosanna means, oh, save. Now, we, we have a savior's complex mentality here in, in America where some people think they need to fix everyone's problems and be everyone's and-all and end-all of everyone's issues. But there was one true savior. Jesus is the destined savior of mankind. And I'm confident it pulled on his heartstrings to hear the masses shouting out his name, saying, save us, save us, Jesus, save us. Throwing their coats down, throwing their palm branches down, saying, save us. That is not your destiny to save people. That is God's, Jesus' destiny to save mankind. Those who repent and ask Him to save them. If you read Psalm 19, 25 and 26, it says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Jesus knew that this welcoming scene, this, this, this ceremony of all these people celebrating and singing and yelling out His name and saying, save us, oh, save us. He knew it causes the enemies to flip into a fit of jealousy where that would result in his crucifixion. But the way the king of the world, the son of God, the Messiah of humanity carried himself just drips with humility, lowness, service, and sacrifice. How humbling would it be to look at the faces and the mouths of these people shouting out, save us, save us, and throwing their coats down, throwing palm branches down, who kissed him that day would kill him later that week. He knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what was coming. This is a moment where it was right and convenient. They may or may not have known what was going on, but he knew later in this book, later in this week, they would be killing him, shouting out, crucify him, death to him. 
Jesus' purpose is to die for fickle people. Fickle people who are not humble, like him. Fickle people who do not submit to God's word, like him. Fickle people who are not in control, like him. His purpose is to die for these people. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, his rightful place. And then he had looked around at everything as it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus' twelve disciples stayed outside of the capital city in Bethany in a house probably owned by Lazarus. Jesus comes and goes this last week doing business in Jerusalem and back to that house in Bethany. In the final week of his life here on earth, he's in a modest house in a small suburban town. It's ironic that the Savior of Israel had to stay outside the capital city of Israel. Everyone else had a place to stay. Three times the population of that city grew and swelled, three times larger than its normal attendance. Everyone else had a place to stay. They made room for everyone else except for the Savior of the nation, our Savior. Passover is commemorating, the Passover festival commemorates God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. It's a reminder that God saved the nation of Israel from the, from, the, from the oppressive nation of Egypt and how he led them out of Egypt. Jews hope for a future deliverance from their current occupation problem with Rome. They look for a future deliverance. Jesus is an earthly king whose purpose is to rule, lead, and reign. But Jesus' purpose was to serve, bleed, and suffer this time around. His second time around, he would come back in the king version you have in your mind of what a king should be like. Jesus conquered not just, not just the Romans. He didn't conquer the Romans. He conquered our bigger enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He conquered it on the cross. Jesus' kingdom outlasted the Roman kingdom. It outlasted the Jewish kingdom. His kingdom has no end. Outlast the Persian kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom. Every kingdom you read about in your Bible, every kingdom of man has beginning and an end. But the kingdom of Jesus reigns forever. Jesus leads an eternal kingdom with an eternal king. The cross's purpose is to humiliate, destroy the legacy and the legitimacy of any, any person. And all their followers should scatter to break them, to destroy them. And Jesus conquered the cross. Jesus crushes every opposition placed in front of him. Pain, death, the grave, corrupt religious leaders, corrupt political leaders, evil men. He defeats them one after another. How does he defeat his enemies? Jesus is modeling humility during one of the worst, darkest weeks of his life. You see, we worship Jesus, the humble God. He defeats all the enemies of God with humility. As we close... The people that saw and heard Jesus both grasped and missed Jesus at the same time. They experienced the presence of God and they missed God. Jesus is, is their king and he isn't coming to purge them from the Roman occupation or political corruption. He's your king and he's coming to destroy their ultimate enemy, death, sin. He's coming to purge them of their sins. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, of all men, women, and children who turn to him. Look at Rome, John 1.12. It says, But to all who received him, to the, to, he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believed in his name. You have to receive him as your king, or else you're just like those people in the crowd that saw, experienced, and missed it. 
With Jesus, you can have life over death. With Jesus, you can have salvation over your sin. With Jesus, you can wash your mind with truth over the lies you believe. With Jesus, you can enter heaven, but only by the complete and total work of Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Our King Jesus, the humble King, has come. Our King Jesus, the glorified King, will return. And since we're on this side of the cross, and we look back to the fact that this is a visited planet where Jesus has came, lived, died, and rose from the dead, we look back and we celebrate his first coming, his first advent as a church. But it's my job, my duty to remind you of Jesus' second coming. He came once and he will return. And he will return in a not-so-humble fashion. In Jesus' first coming, we see he came to die here on this planet. He will come to reign the second coming. He came on a little donkey the first time. The second time, he will come on a warrior horse. He came as a humble servant. The second time, he will come as an exalted king. His first time, he came in weakness. The second coming of Christ, he will come in power. He came to save the first time. The second time Jesus comes, he will come to judge. He came in love the first time. He will come in wrath the second time. He came as deity veiled, veiled. He will come as deity revealed. He came with 12 disciples. He will come with an army of angels. He came to bring peace. He will come to make war. He first came with a crown of thorns. The second time he comes, he will receive a crown of royalty. He came as a suffering servant. second time he will come as king of kings and lord of lords. Daniel Atkins in his writings wrote, Few bow before the great king the first time he came. However, every knee will bow when he comes again. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus. We truly worship Jesus, who is always in complete control. We worship Jesus, who always submits to the word of God. And we worship Jesus, the humble God. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, I thank you for, thank you for Easter. Thank you for Palm Sunday. I thank you for what you have done and what you are doing in our lives. We desperately need you, God, to show up in our hearts. Uh, make today a meaningful day where we bow our hearts to you and believe in you. And you're not just a king, you're my king. I pray that we would be in total submission to you. There's areas in our lives where we are not humble and we are not submitted to sin in our life. We have unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin. There is sin in our lives that we are aware of and we are tolerating as Christians. I pray that we would be humble, Lord. We would submit to your word. Lord, I just thank you for the work you've done. I ask that you just continue to grow and build us as a church as men and women as we try to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.